I'll, I will welcome anybody who wants to say that that's the ultimate fan service. And I will just go, yeah, yes, it yeah, is. it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> and you wanted it and you know you want it, mm. right? Like, it, it works thematically. It works narratively, right? And that was important too, right? We knew we wanted to do it. Mm. But they couldn't just like go and get the Enterprise D because they thought it would be cool. I am Locutus. So let's go back to 1980, Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, uh, Christopher Monfett is born. Right, right. Uh, walk us through, like, a little your, hog cabin in the middle of yeah, the... You know, <laughs> on, honest, honest Chris, you know, I would never tell a lie. Um, and just, you know, what was it like for you growing up and kind of where you grew up? And Yeah, I, so I grew, up in, I grew up in western Massachusetts uh, in, a, in a kind of a small town, you know, just sort of rural western Mass. Half of it was very... Um, kind of old industrial paper city, you know, uh, kind of redefining itself. Uh, and then the other half was very suburban. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was a, kind of a nerd since birth, you know, like my dad was a, just a real everyday dude, real great guy, super blue collar, was a police officer. And my mother um, worked for the first half of my life. And then um, she just, just d devoted her life to being a mom. And so, um, they, you know, kind of found themselves with a kid who was more of an introvert. Like I, I grew up, I loved to read. I loved to, um, I loved to read books. I loved to read comic books. Uh, and then my uncle who was a, um, kind of a Harvard grad, he was a little bit more of like an intellectual, uh, he started feeding me like plays, uh, and short stories and, um, and, and I weirdly introduced me to video games. So he would introduce me to like old school, like, uh, you, I remember he had this old, I mean, dinosaur laptop that had the old school text adventures on it, like the you know, Zork and like, right. you know, really like when it was like walk North, walk East yes, and you were like yes. making like maps on like yeah, Oregon Trail. Yeah. All those things. And so, um, yeah. So, you know, I, I just, I had all the wrong ingredients to be a nerd from a very early age. And yeah. so whether it was reading or whether it was video games or whether it was watching movies. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in a very small town where there was little else to do but consume media and stories, and, and that sort of, like, sunk very deep into me. So, gotcha. Yeah. So there's some point where your mom gets ill, mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, I think you said at one point that you were a little nervous, kind of yeah. nervous as a child. Yeah, your yeah. dad did something that probably landed you to where you are today. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Tell us that story. So my mom had some medical issues early on, and mm -hmm. she would spend a lot of time uh, at the doctors. And um, and my father, who, you know, I, for as good of a guy as he is, he's not a geek. He's not a nerd, you know. So he doesn't speak, you know, the language of, like, Doctor Who and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he, does, he doesn't read Stephen King books and Clive Barker books and all that. So... Uh, you know, the only way that I think he really knew the kind of olive branch he had to extend to try to calm and reassure his nervous kid, whose mother, you know, was spending a lot of time in the hospital, um, was to bring me home and show me Star Trek. Because um, he'd grown up with it. He'd grown up with the original series and 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 really loved it and enjoyed it and um, never carried that, like, passion on the way that, like, other Trekkies do. Um, but it was like the language of science fiction that he knew how to speak and like it was his to share. So, um, you know, he, he was terrific. Like, uh, and then he would also like sneak me R rated movies. So 
you know, he'd show me like RoboCop <laughs> or something, you know, or he'd be like, here, watch Aliens, don't Ooh. tell mom, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, we watched a lot of, of old school Trek. And so when TNG kind of came into the picture, um, I was really primed to sort of receive that in a way that, you know, like, uh, you know, there's a phrase that like Doctor Who fans use where they'll say like, that's my doctor, right? It's like the point at which they came in to the series and the, and the one that they sort of imprinted on. And so, you know, watching the original series with my dad really primed me when when Next Gen came out to sort of relate really specifically to that show because um, it felt more of my time. Right. Um, but uh, but I, I I now had all the Trek in my blood to sort of make me appreciate it. So it was great. It was a, it was a cool experience. My mother ended up being ultimately fine, you know, um, but it was that great bonding with my father. Um, and, and sort of like science fiction as a, as a bridge, you know, between super geeky son and cop dad, um, that was, you know, really moving and meaningful and cool. I didn't have my, I didn't grow up with my father. So James Kirk was my (laughs) dad growing up. Yeah. I looked up to him. What was it about POS that you loved about it when you sat with your dad? Well, I think I was so young at the time, you know. The the stuff that we like about Trek as we get older, the 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 its principles, its values, like all that stuff, I think was secondary at at that time in my life to the sci fi of it, like the different species. I mean, who doesn't love a triple, right? Like you're just like, oh yeah, these things are cute. I'm in. Like, um, and and you come to the virtues of it over time. So. The older I got, the more I was able to look back on the episodes that I'd seen and sort of really process the core value system of what Trek is and and the the premium it places on science and discovery and teamwork and um, integrity and communication. Uh, you kind of come to appreciate that um, after the fact a little bit when you're that age um, because you're sort of razzle-dazzled by the colors and the costumes and all that stuff. And that's that's a great entry point into it. But it's like, it's the gateway drug for all the really good stuff. Mm. Um, and so I was a little bit older when when um, I got into TNG. And I was sort of able to experience those two things together. You know, I was able to go, oh, man, like, you know, Jean-Luc Picard or Riker or anybody on this crew are such principled people. And then these stories are such great science fiction stories um, that being able to sort of appreciate both sides of the coin at the same time um, was was a, a really formative experience um because at that time i came to doctor who much later in life but at that time you know star trek was star trek was my sci-fi until x-files came along you know um but like star trek was the soul i was a you know i liked and appreciated star wars um but star trek was really the 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 one piece of science fiction that I related to the most. So there's a DNA here. I can feel it. The th- <laughs> same things you're talking about, the same things that I experienced. Right. And I know Brian experienced and there's a Star Trek, Star Wars thing. You're either a Star Trek person or you're a Star Wars thing. And I right. think there's that deep mental seat that you have with Star Trek where you're fascinated and there's, there's an element of inspiration, I think in Star, right. in Star yeah. Trek that exists. Um, so uh, TNG is your informative years. You were seven when TNG came out. Yep. And then as you're growing up, you get, you know, DS9, then you get Voyager, and um, which, I know DS9 was your favorite of those three, right? I wouldn't, I don't know if it was my favorite, but it was the 
if I were to look back, mm-hmm. it's the one the adult in me appreciates the most, right? It's mm-hmm. it's sort of, um, you know, you know, you you've got Star Trek, you've got, uh, um, you've got, uh, and then you've got Battlestar eventually a little later, right? Which is a little darker. It's a little more nuanced, more serialized. Um, and I and I really love Battle. I mean, Battlestar is is not holy, but you know, a pretty perfect piece of science fiction mm-hmm. entertainment. Um, and you know, I think, like, I think DS Nine is is in some ways a bridge between those two kinds of storytelling, right? Like, mm-hmm. it was that sense of, you know, we're not necessarily on a vessel that can go anywhere, so the stories have to be between the people that come here, right? The, um, and so there there was there was a kind of a deeper sense of character and um, nuance, right? Like you could you could get a little darker, you could get a little bit more political, you could explore some things that maybe you wouldn't have explored in previous seasons. Or series, uh, and so I, I remember really going like, "Oh, you can you can tell some deeper stories in this format, um, and and you can explore some really interesting and cooler things." So uh, I, I I really appreciated DS Nine when it came out, and and looking back, uh, I sometimes I, I I will look back at at Cisco as much as I do, or um, you know, almost as often as I do something like Picard. So right, yeah. Where does Janeway fit in your captains? You know, it's interesting. Like, you know, I, I I love Voyager, but I was a more passive viewer of Voyager and Enterprise. Like, you know, I, I don't know whether that was just life experience or, you know, what was going on in my life at the time. But, you know, uh, TOS, TNG, and, and DS9 were the ones that I really followed. And then um, Voyager, like, was uh, th- that was the one I would sort of tune into as we went, right? Like... Mm-hmm. You'd be like, oh, that seven nine character is really cool, and then you'd miss a couple episodes, and then you'd catch them, and then you'd catch back up eventually. But, um, you know, so I, I got to discover Voyager a little bit later, you know, and rediscover it in some ways because we're, you know, kind of referencing bits and pieces and characters from Voyager this season on Picard. It was a really good excuse to go back and just like reappreciate it um, because I had sort of missed it, not missed it, but like, yeah, I hadn't really focused on it the first time. Yes, got yeah, it. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so how old were you when you read your first Stephen King novel? <laughs> so, uh, I, I remember, I don't remember the age. I remember it was, it was inappropriately young. Um, <laughs> right. I, so there, there used to be an, there used to be a chain of, uh, grocery stores in Western Mass. It might still be there called Stop and Shop. Mm-hmm. And my, my, my mother would take me shopping and, uh, because I was a nerd, I'd linger in the book section while, while she went and, and did other stuff. And so, uh, you know, I had said, you know, I'd seen the Stephen King book. And at the time, Stephen King and Clive Barker had both published novels. Stephen King had, had published a, a novel called Eyes of the Dragon. And then Clive Barker had a novel called The Thief of Always, which were both meant for younger Fantasy. audiences. So um, I, I remember those being on the shelf and I kind of pulled them and I said, you know, Mom, can I get these? And I think she was just happy to have a kid who wanted to read, you know. So she was like, yeah, yeah, throw them in the cart. So I read those books, and those are good books for kids. Like, mm-hmm. they're scary, they're a little bit darker, but, like, they're fun, young adult tales. So for someone who's seven or eight, you know, they're kind of palatable. Um, and then I burned through those really quickly. And so two, three shopping trips later, we're back at the stop and shop, and uh, and I and I go to the books, bookshelf, and I'm like, hey, I like that Stephen King guy, and I like that Clive Barker guy. So Stephen King had... a book called The Stand, and Clive Barker had a book called The Magica, 
And they were both like 800, 900 page like mm -hmm. tomes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I said, you know, mom, I want to read these. And she's like, um, those are, you know, pretty ambitious for, you know, whatever I was at the time, eight, nine. And but she's like, OK. And I don't think she really thought. I think she knew Stephen King was scary. I don't think she knew that Clive Barker was as messed up as Clive Barker was. Right, right. So I don't know if she knew what she was saying <laughs> yes to at the time. But, you know, there I was, at a super young age, like, meticulously reading these thousand-page books. Mm. Because at that time, all the authors were trying to write their version of The Stand. Like, every author who was publishing at the time was Stephen King, Dean Koontz, mm. Clive Barker, like, uh, Robert McCommon. Like, they would all have their one 900-page novel and then i so, sought i sought all of those out because I, I realized i liked big dense mm -hmm. like uh you know, multi-character like big encompassing things which probably looking back on it really does inform why like tv is a storytelling medium because it feels like a really meaty novel that i grew up reading and loving so that's cool yeah yeah so you're eight nine i did not expect to say that early <laughs> my first one was cujo right and uh, I was a little bit older, but that's that's fascinating. So at what <laughs> point did you say, uh, I can do this? Like, I can write this stuff. Um, I started writing short stories. My my uncle really encouraged me. You know, he said, look, you like reading. Um, just, you know, get a pen, get a piece of paper. You like these text adventure games that we play together. Um, you know, so just start, you know, scratching some ideas down. And so I had written... <laughs> oh my god, I still remember it. I, I, I was really loving the Indiana Jones movies at the time. And so I, had, I wrote a short story called, and I think we had just learned about the, the, the city of Cibola, the city of gold. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I had written a short story called Indiana Jones and the Search for Cibola. And uh, I'm probably masquering the pronunciation of that. And, um, and how he found it built underneath the Rocky Mountains Ooh. at the time that made sense yeah, to me yeah. as a kid. And, uh, and so I did that and I, I, I was like really proud of myself. I'm like, Oh, Hey, this is like 10 pages. That's a long story or, you know, whatever it was. Um, and I think also at the time there was a series of adventure games um, published by a company called LucasArts. Uh, and they, they had their whole um, uh, adventure game division. And so they would do like the, the search for monkey Island and all that. And they had, a great Indiana Jones game called Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. So I was super inspired by that game. Like, um, yeah. And so I, I wrote this, I, I wrote the story um, and that was really fun. And then I would dabble in kind of just stories, fantasy stories, um, really simple, like kid stuff, you know? And then when I got to high school, it was my freshman year in high school. I went to a Catholic high school and uh, they were putting together a literary magazine, and and I was a big Edgar Allan Poe fan, which they did not teach in English class. But um, I wrote a sequel to Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado, um, which I which I submitted, and they I remember them asking me if I'd really written it because they 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 were like, "This is written at you know a senior English level, not a freshman right, English right. level, or whatever." And so I think maybe that was the first time that like someone other than like my parents, you know, who are sort of obligated by biology and finances to just tell me, yeah, yeah, you did a good job. Uh, you know, it was a there was a teacher had read something and said, you know, I almost don't believe that you wrote this. It's really good. Um, and I guess it kind of 
made me feel like, oh, there's some value in this, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, maybe I can do this. But, I mean, it would be, like, decades before, you know, I got to a point in my life where I, I, I like, even thought doing it professionally would be an option. So, at that time, it was probably video games. So Yeah, yeah. Because um, we know you're a big video game guy. Yes, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, was that the dream in high school was, okay, this writing thing's cool, but video games are my passion? Was that kind of the way it was? I, I don't think at the time there was really a sense of... It was interesting. Video games were, were still... You know, you had, you know, Mario was actually not far, right, mm. from from having been the game that everyone was playing. I mean, now we're talking, we're in the early 90s, right? Um, and I, it certainly was not a medium, I think, one would have associated with writing. Um, I don't think at the time anyone was like, I'm going to grow up and write video games. Because you didn't really think of them as things that, like, were written. They were just, yeah. you know, jump on this shit. Nintendo Magazine. Right. You know, yeah. um, but I knew I loved video games. And I knew I loved uh, I loved RPGs. So I remember Final Fantasy was a series of video games at the time that I really uh, I really liked from Japan. What I really liked was that it had all these cool combat systems, and there was a sense of, like, discovery. You know, right? Like, there was a, something going on in the story over here, but I could kind of wander over here, and there was something cool to find here and I remember that kind of breaking my brain for a minute because it felt like a, a kind of interactive version of those old choose your own adventure novels that I really liked growing up. And eventually, you know, you'd see that idea in games like um, Morrowind, like the Elder Scrolls mm-hmm. games, like Oblivion, Skyrim. Um, and I remember there was a, I was playing Morrowind on the PC uh, when it first came out. I don't know what year that was. And I remember the game starts you off and doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you where to go, what to do. And I'm just sort of like, I think this game is bad. Like, I don't know. It's not telling me anything. Right, right. And so I just wandered. And I went, I don't know, over some hill and into a cool area where it was clear I was not supposed to be. Everything was way stronger than I, you know, than I was. Mm-hmm. And I ran through a cave. And I was, like, running past monsters. And I didn't know where I was going. And I, and I managed to get, like, a sword. Uh, and there was a little bit of story around the weapon. And I got it. And I managed to get out of the cave. And I got back to the safety of the starting point. And I had this weapon in my hand that I wasn't supposed to have. And I got this feeling of like, I think I've broken the game. Like, <laughs> I, I, like I think I'm not supposed to have this sword yet. It's killing things really easily. Right, right. And, uh, and there was, I think that was the first moment that I really remember playing a video game where I thought, oh, this medium is going to do great things. It's evolving into storytelling platform. Right. And so you it, had that awareness. I had that awareness at, at some point. Um, and so it really dovetailed with my love of film and television and um, and, and, uh, and 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 writing. I just never thought of it as like, I'm going to go write for video games. So m- much later in life, after graduating high school, going through college, um, I, I, I got out of college with a, a, a degree in uh, marketing. So I'd done a lot of in- internships so with marketing you, and PR. Before you go that far. Yeah, yeah. So where did you go to college? Fordham University, New York City. Oh, New York City. Yeah. And when you went, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? I mean, you're a great I writer. I, I thought I wanted to do film. Okay. And uh, and where I ended up was doing PR for a video game company, mm-hmm. working for Xbox and Microsoft. Um, and just to finish kind of answering that question, which is like, it, video games were a through line, not just of my childhood, but into my early career. Um, and they really, it, 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 it moved side and side with my love for TV and film. So as I'm sort of a young kid playing video games, realizing this is a medium where I think interesting things are going to happen, uh, my grandfather, who is 
is such an exceptionally good human being and one of my all-time role models and just a tremendously um, lovely man, I think wanted to get to know his grandson better. And so every week he would pick me up on a Saturday, we'd go to McDonald's, we'd get some lunch, uh, we'd go, you know, CVS, grab some candy, and we'd go see a movie. And so once a week from 8 to 18, uh, I would go to the movies with my grandfather. And so, I mean, I watched more movies than anybody I knew at the time. Like, I mean, it didn't matter what the movie was. Whatever came out that week, that's what we'd go see. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those two kind of things, kind of my my interest in those progressed at kind of a, at a particular rate. And then it was after college that they kind of collided and then merged into one. So marketing over English. Yeah. So, I mean, I... I, I I loved writing and I, you know, I, I really leaned into English, you know, English classes in high school. And then when I got to uh, New York, um, you know, I was like, let me study film. Right. And so I'll study film theory. I'll study filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was doing that, you have to do internships. So, um, you know, what I really wanted to, to do was filmmaking, but there's not a lot of, Fordham at the time didn't have as robust like a filmmaking program as like NYU, for right. example. So, um, so the internships I found myself getting were in the marketing and PR departments mm-hmm. of film studios. So, you know, there I was like cutting clips from newspapers whenever a movie would come out, yeah. put together the packets that we then at the time had to fax. Yes. You know, like we didn't have email quite yet or mm-hmm. it was in its heyday, it's nascent. Um, you know, so I would do all of that stuff. And, you know, that was kind of the experience I ended up, like, I could put that on a resume and get a job doing it. But I didn't want to do, like, boring marketing stuff. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. And so, um, you know, I, I when I was in college, because you're broke, uh, you want to get as much free stuff as you can. So I realized if I review these things as journalists, um, they'll send me like music companies will like send me free albums. Video game companies will send me free games, and so I learned how to sort of use my marketing skills to be a freelance journalist cool. um, to just sort of you know finance my entertainment addiction. <laughs> right. And um, and so I those skills kind of merged after college, and I ended up going to work for Xbox um, and was Mark doing marketing and, and PR for them. So was that in New York or had you? So I, I, that job was in LA. So that's what brought okay. me out to LA. I, I applied for it a couple of years after leaving school and that brought me out to LA. And so here I am living in Los Angeles and I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to write the, you know, PR plans for these great video games that I'm really, I'm getting to meet the people who are designing those video games. It's really fun. It's really cool. Um, but it was still like not quite, what I wanted to do. I wanted to be writing. I wanted to put words on paper. And what so, year did you come out here? This was 2004. Okay. Um, I was, I was now out here. Um, Just I, after Chris Eccleson was the doctor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I hadn't even, uh, at that point I had, I had no experience with Dr. Who and mm-hmm. I came to that way late in life. We have the same favorite doctor. Tennant. Yeah. Oh yeah. Tennant's totally my He's doctor. Man, right. Not but, Matt Smith. <laughs> I mean, they're both comparable. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, um, you know, so I'm out in LA. I'm tinkering with screenplays at the time. Like I, 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 I had found that, you know, I, I found a real love and passion for dialogue. Like I had read so much theater, and I was a little bit of a theater nerd, and um, and I came up during that big like 
Miramax movie boom of the indie, oh, yeah. sort of the indie movement in the 90s, where every director was like sharp character dialogue, Tarantino, Shane Black, Steven Soderbergh, all those guys, mm-hmm. Kevin Smith making these amazing character dialogue driven movies that at the time I was like, you know, man, you know, dialogue just you can do the what you can do with words and the musicality of sentences is so impressive. And then, uh, you know, out of vogue to to mention him, but at the time we didn't know. Joss Whedon comes along and starts applying that to, um, starts applying that to genre. Right. And Aaron Sorkin comes along and, and does that for the West Wing. And Amy Sherman Palladino starts to come along and do that for the sort of CW soap. Yeah. Um, and you're like, man, there's a lot of people with really good ears writing television now. And uh, uh, you know, David Simon doing that with cop shows. And um, and so, you know, I said, you know, I want to try doing this. So as I'm doing marketing for video games, as I'm writing, you know, freelance on the side, you know, uh, movie reviews for these small publications, um, you know, I'm I'm typing away on like a, a, a spec script for myself. Um, I did not come out to L.A. with that intention. I'm not I didn't I came out here to take a job with Microsoft. I didn't come out here to be a screenwriter. It was always in your soul. It just right. had to come forth. Yeah. And I was, I was just, so it was something I was doing for purely for me at mm. the time. I never thought that anyone would look at my writing. Um, but then I got bored of doing this sort of bureaucratic marketing thing. I'd had enough contacts on the video game journalism side. And I said, well, maybe I can get paid to play these things instead mm. of shill for these things. And Ooh. so I moved my career from marketing to journalism. So I went to IGN and I was there for a bunch of years and then G4 after that, um, where I really, I was writing about um, video games. I was writing about movies. I was reviewing them. Uh, and I was having a ball doing that because I was just working with my fellow nerds. And, and I was getting to sort of, if not in the way I wanted to do it, I was getting to use my my talent, my skill set right. um, to talk about what I loved. Mm. And, and ultimately the people I met there would be the people who gave me my opportunities later down the line to do, um, to get into this business. So, you know. So had you met uh, Clive Barker yet at that point? That's when I met him. Um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I was a huge nerd. Uh, I read all of his books. I was curious what he was doing next. And I found myself in a place where I could just pitch to my editor. Hey, I want to call up Clive Barker and just see if he'll do an interview and we'll figure out what he's working on. And we'll try to get a scoop on what's his next movie or what's his next book. Um, and so I did, and, and he was super lovely. And so come on over to my house and, um, went over there and interviewed him for, my God, it was like three, four hours and we totally hit it off. And Clive is one of those guys where when you're in front of him, you have his full attention. You feel like you are the only person he's ever met in the world. He's so caring and compassionate. And then when you're gone, he applies that to everybody else, right? right. So right, right. it may be a couple of months before you see him again because he get, he gets so busy and so caught up in other people. Um, but he said, come back next week. And he said, continue talking to me. We did. And we developed a, a real relationship and a real friendship and a mentorship. Mm-hmm. And he eventually said, look, pick something of mine. Do it as a movie. Um, you know, you, you talk about writing and how much it means to you. Um, and he said, I'll give you whatever of my, you know, books or short stories that I can. Um, and, you know, you can use my brand or my name or whatever to whatever advancement it may, it may 
offer you. That's so generous. And so I did. I ended up writing two movies for his production company, neither of which got made, but he was very happy with those scripts. And then he introduced me to Stephen King, um, who optioned me a, a project for uh, of his to adapt, which I did. And it was those scripts that kind of got me my first... Which one was Stephen King's adaptation? So I did a, an adaptation of a short story of his called Fair Extension, um, which is a little... Uh, uh, no, it's from, um, God, I'm completely blank. One after that. Yes. Uh, it, it, so it's, uh, 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 full dark, no stars. Yes. Full dark, no stars. Um, and, uh, and it was just this, I'd come out of a period of my life where some things had happened where that had me thinking about, uh, fairness, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, just the, the, the bullshit that happens to you along the way that you mean you, you don't feel like you deserve or you feel like where did that that kind of the piano fell on my head where did it right. come from why did that happen um and so I, I i i really connected with the small sort of 30 page short story and clive said look i'll put you in touch with with steven and maybe he'll let you do it and steven said look i'll give you the option for a dollar He's always um, you know, and, uh, you know, the same way he did with, with Frank yeah. Darbont, Shawshank and, yeah. um, and he was incredibly generous and, uh, really lovely and, and very present to help me with any questions and kind of shaping the adaptation and was ultimately very, um, like very happy with the scripts yeah. and, and very generous with his praise. Um, now none of those movies got made. Most movies that get written don't get made. So, you know, that, I, that was an early lesson in like, Getting the thing on screen can't be your goal in this industry. It has to be the experience of having done it yeah. and the satisfaction of having done it well, because everything beyond that is out of your control. So, you know, I, I, I wrote these three movies that I was incredibly proud of, that the people I adapted them for were very happy with. Um, and, you know, it wasn't ultimately that they got made. It was that they got me my early reps. They, they gave me a little bit of legitimacy as a writer um, where I could start going, okay, maybe I can kind of sell myself, that, you know, maybe I can call myself a writer. But I hadn't made a dollar yeah. um, to write anything at that point. It wasn't until we did the Hellraiser comic book that uh, that I, I got paid to write. So that came first, right? So Yeah. Okay, so you went from optioning these. Now, you did make a movie, though. <laughs> I did. I made, a, so I made a movie with Darren Bowsman mm -hmm. called Abattoir, yeah. uh, which is a bizarro little fleck. I, 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 it should not have worked that it kind of works is a miracle yeah. um, because, you know, it, it was one of those sort of productions that was beset by challenges on all sides. Um, and, and, but it was this great core idea about uh, a, a sinister old man who buys these, these houses where terrible things have happened and um, removes the, the rooms where the tragedies have occurred. And out there somewhere in the forest, he is building a haunted house with That's all cool. of these cursed rooms. You must have saw 13 Ghosts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we were doing it with this production company, uh, which was struggling to get the financing. Darren Bowsman, who had directed a bunch of Saw movies, um, who's a great filmmaker and a good friend of mine, um, you know, he was putting every ounce of his energy and his passion into it. And Darren is just, he's, he's, he comes up with these ideas, right? So I had, I had, there were a couple sequences in the movie that I had written that were a little kind of Sorkin-esque, a little banter, you know, the dialogue was a little fast. Yeah. 
And when he read the script, it, 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 it switched in his mind to like, oh, this is like an old bogey and Bacall noir. So let's put everybody in like old noir clothes and like, let, let's have it be a fusion of like present day in 1950s. And you're like, okay, you know, creative, yeah. and so, you know, there were all these financial challenges that really in some ways restricted the movie. And then Darren would come up with these sort of crazy and interesting and really great visual ideas that would enrich the movie. So it's, it's just a really weird, wild, uh, it's not perfect by any means, but it, it's, it's, I, I look back on it now and I'm like, man, it's fun, right? Like you, you watch that movie and you're like, there's, n- I haven't really seen this before. Yeah. It's certainly new. And you can kind of see where the money ran out or where the, you know, um, you know, one draft collided with another draft. You can see the seams. Um, but when it works, it really cooks. It's it's a yeah. fun little film. It's so. got a good fan following, too. It does. People seem to like yeah. it. And people will bring it up to me more than I would imagine that they would. So, right. Yeah. So uh, the op- the movies that you did write that didn't get optioned. Right. And so does that lead to the comic books? Yeah. So I had done the two movies for Clive. And then uh, Boom Publishing uh, went to Clive and, and said, hey, you know, we'd love to do something with the Hellraiser franchise. Mm-hmm. Clive at the time was, I think, working on a couple other, he was working on a series of books called The Aberat, which was going to be, I think three or four of them are published now. It was going to be a big, his Harry Potter, right? Like his big young adult um, visual fantasy world that he was creating. And I think is ultimately still creating it. Um, And so he didn't necessarily have the bandwidth to go write the comics on his own. So he called me and he said, let me bring you into this conversation. And what would you want to do with Hellraiser and Pinhead if you could do anything? And I sort of said, well, you know, I really like the first two movies. I kind of dig the third. Everything after that's just cuckoo bananas. Um, but, you know, I said, I'd, I'd love to do something that was a direct follow up to um, the first two movies and really picked up that mythology X amount of years later. and. The funny kind of hook of the whole thing was Clive and I were sort of talking about, I was, I'm 42 now, I, I, to think that I was feeling old in my early 30s is insane. But, you know, there was a part of me that's like, man, I'm in my 30s and I'm, I'm feeling older than I was when I was in my 20s. And, and for whatever reason, talking to Clive that we sort of had these conversations about, well, what must it be like to be an aging horror icon? And so weirdly, that existential crisis became the hook of Hellraiser, which is, if you're Pinhead and you're all about the, the 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 far end of sensation and all the horrors and feelings that you can feel and terrors that you can cause, but after 30 years of doing them, you sh- you probably feel nothing anymore, right? It's all old hat to you. And so we said, well, what if we told the story where Pinhead just wanted to give it up, but he had to have someone pick up the mantle for him? And so what if it was about how he would physically and psychologically manipulate the hero of the first two Hellraiser movies, Clive's Kirsty Cotton, um, into agreeing to become the new uh, Pinhead. And so it was this sort of psychological game, supernatural game of cat and mouse that, yeah. that we came up with. And then I went off and wrote, I think it was the eight scripts, and mm-hmm. um, could not have had a better partner, not just in Clive, but in Boom. They were super yeah. supportive and um, were great, uh, great resource for just giving us the best artists and amazing covers and i mean it was it was was a total um pleasure but also like a real education that would end up paying off later because a lot of screenwriters never have at least until later in their career when they get on set for example 
they're not forced to think visually about what they're writing. They may have comps in their heads for like, oh, I'm going to write a Blade Runner-esque thing or whatever. They can imagine, but they don't have to think about shots, right? Right. The way that I now, if I'm on set for Picard or whatever show I'm working on, really do have to think like, okay, you need this shot. That needs to edit into this shot. You can't miss this. You need to get this from this angle. And when you've worked on comics, you kind of, it really trains your brain to think that way. Right. Because you're thinking um, of the next picture for you. Yeah. You're thinking of like, what is the, I got, you know, I've got a limited number of pages, a limited number of panels. Mm -hmm. How do I get a character from that side of the room to that side of the room in as few, um, in as few panels as possible? And, and what pieces of action um, get their own? And how do you create a sense of movement and fluidity between them? And all those challenges really did. Uh, equip me to be a better TV writer later um, in a way that I what I didn't know at the time. I was really surprised by it down the road. So that was your master class into where your future was going. Yeah, of. a little bit. I didn't know it at the time. But I, I just thought I was having fun. And, 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 and you know, at the time I was, uh, I thought, you know, man, I should go out. I've never written a comic book. Um, I, I was always a, a movie guy, a video game guy. I liked comic books, but I didn't grow up with comic books the way like some of my other, you know, nerd geek colleagues have done. So I was really intimidated. And, and, uh, you know, I bought, I went out and I bought all these books on how to, how to write for comics and panel structure. And, and Clive was just like, don't throw it out. He's like, just tell the story the way that you want to tell the story. Don't put yourself in the box of other people. Now, you can't throw it out completely. I had to educate myself a little bit, right? right. There is a, a way it is done. But he would always encourage you to just sort of like, you're not going to have the new idea, the idea that's purely your own, if all you're drawing from is stuff that other people have done. Mm -hmm. So he would always challenge me to sort of say, you know, look, this panel structure is a panel structure that I've seen in a thousand different comic books before. So what's a way to do this that didn't come from the book you bought that told you how to do this. Interesting. And it was all that sort of the, those challenges that like really equipped me to understand the visual side of what I would eventually write on TV um, and have a slightly better understanding of like, oh, I can't write this scene this way because it won't film this way. And once you have that understanding of the process, it really does inform what you do as a writer. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, can you tell a story? Does that lead you to Terry Metalis? So what's, yes, uh, yeah. how do you go from comic books to Terry? So while all this is happening, I am I'm not, I've, with the exception of the comic books, I've not made a dime. Like I could not pay my rent uh, off, of, off of being a writer for sure. And so I'm working at IGN uh, doing video game coverage, movies coverage. And while at IGN, I meet um, Travis Fickett, who was Terry Metalis' writing partner on 12 Monkeys. Mm. And through Travis, ultimately meet Terry. So I've now known Terry for I mean almost fifteen years, um, and almost more than that. And so we just became fast friends. It was me and Terry, Travis at the time, and we were just nerds together. Like you know, at that point, um, you know, Terry and Travis, I think maybe had staffed on Terra Nova, but I, I think I might have met them before that. He wasn't even was a thing. So you know. They would send me spec scripts that they wrote, pilots, features, and they were always great. They were always super imaginative, really funny, um, very much in sort of Terry's sensibility and his wheelhouse. And we would just trade, you know, this idea, that idea, whatever. We just kick stuff around. Um, and that relationship wouldn't, 
to say payoff. I mean, the relationship was the payoff, but that relationship wouldn't evolve into a professional relationship for like a seven years after that. I mean, I, I, I knew them for almost seven or eight years before 12 Monkeys ended up coming along. What did you um, do during that time? So again, I was just, just writing, uh, doing video game stuff, entertainment stuff, IGN. I went to G4 after that. Uh, I, I was working on the comic books. And then there was about a three-year, four-year period of my life where I, I kind of felt like, look, I've written a bunch of scripts. doesn't seem to be happening. I've got an agent. I've got a manager. But the jobs aren't coming. Um, I, had a, I had a life change happen to me. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time to move back to New York to be closer to my family um, and kind of figure out what the next step is. I gave it a shot. didn't work. Um, And so I did that. I kind of dropped out for about three or four years and I made a different choice. Um, And I went back to New York and I met, uh, I I reconnected Mm -hmm. um, with a a woman I had known for many, many years who's now my wife. Um, And we started our life together and I was sort of trying to figure out at the time what my new career path would be. And I, and I thought, you know, I had done the LA thing. I had some success in writing. And if those comic books were going to be, or that movie was the only thing I ever got made. Um, it was, it was fun. It was a privilege. It was an honor to just be able to do that. And so, you know, I, I really didn't write much. I tinkered. I I wrote scripts for myself, but, um, not with the intention of uh, really making a career back in LA. And it was a week before my wedding um, that uh, that my phone rang, and it was Terry saying, "Hey, uh, we sold twelve monkeys. Uh, the writers' room starts on Monday. Uh, get on a plane and get out here. I'm gonna gift wrap you your career." Wow! And um, and my wife, who was just incredibly supportive, uh, she let me a week before my wedding fly out. Get in the writer's room on a Monday, Friday, get back on a plane, get married on a Saturday, Sunday, back on a plane to L.A., where I, I lived in my manager's guest room for the next 19 weeks as we wrote the first season of 12 Monkeys. And she was amazingly supportive of me um, chasing my dream and making that a reality um, because she had had that done for her. Like... My wife was a, a radio DJ on the West Coast. I mean, so she, she was in the number, she was a DJ in the in New York, number one station, number one market. And she knew what it was like to get to do at the highest level the thing that you grew up wanting to do. And so, you know, I, I was really conflicted about look, I'm not scared of not succeeding. I'm actually scared of succeeding, right? Because if I go out to LA and this works. It's going to mean a whole different life for us. It's going to mean a whole different life for her. And she said, no, you got to go because um, you're going to regret it your entire life if you don't. And so I went and we did season one of 12 Monkeys and then three seasons followed. And then everything else is an extension of 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 her support. And um, Terry just remembering me as a friend who kicked around great ideas together. Um, and so, you know, that. That friendship, you know, that I'd made seven years earlier was the thing that seven years later, uh, you know, became the sort of launch pad for my career. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, uh, both of those things I'm, I'm very honored to have, to have had in my life. So, yes, you are yeah. very blessed. Uh, you know, a lot of yeah. people get married and that newly married person is like, well, wait a second. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. Where do you think you're going? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, to have a friend bring you back and, you know, he must have recognized in you you know, the thing that he 
you know, more than a friendship because you're, you know, you're obviously very talented. You know, we've seen all of your work and it's fantastic. But um, Terry is talented at putting a team together, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've always said that sort of Terry's superpower is he knows how to play the orchestra. Mm. Um, Terry is really exceptionally skilled at uh, figuring out, of putting a team together and figuring out what everybody on that team is really good at. Um, and so he'll know, for example, if you're going to do something like Picard, right? You need someone who really understands Star Trek. You need someone who really understands this character's voice, who can write this, who can do action, who can do someone who's really great with like big swing sci-fi ideas, someone who's really good with those smaller emotional moments. And he'll put together a room full of writers, all of whom excel at each piece of the puzzle. And then he'll pair them up and, and sort of choreograph their voices. So that, you know, hopefully there's like a consistency across the season where you don't even necessarily know that maybe like five writers all worked on the same script, right? Or it just feels organic and it feels right. And he then also knows how to do that at a technical level. Mm. Terry really understands um, music, really loves score and soundtrack. So he'll go out and he'll get the right person for the job. And, And, you know, he met... Steven on 12 Monkeys, and we're using him this season on uh, Picard, and he's extraordinary. Like, Terry met uh, Drew Nichols, who's our editor on 12 Monkeys, who is brilliant. I mean, the guy is one of the, one of the if not the most impressive editors I've ever seen work, who can just make something out of nothing on the day that you just you didn't get anything you wanted or anything you thought you were going to get, and he'll just crack his knuckles, and, and here's you know a genius scene comes out of it. So Terry's very good at sort of assembling the Avengers, mm. um, and 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 so using Samuel them, L. Jackson. yeah, and using them to tackle the vision that he has in his head for the thing that he's trying to bring to life, you know. Yeah. Um, but again, like you said, like I I I I really always this is this is a relationship business first, and I don't mean to say that when you come up in this industry the job is to look for the people who can do something for you because it almost never works that way. But it's, if you come into this and you make genuine relationships with good and talented people who in, in whose career you are invested as much as you hope they will be in yours, you'll create a community of people that all have each other's backs. Right. And that's where the payoff with Terry was like Terry got there first, Mm -hmm. Terry and Travis, they had a script called splinter. That became 12 Monkeys. They sold that show. And then they looked back on the people that they knew. And they said, look, who who was really there for us, right? Like, yeah. who's not here to get the gig? But who's here to support us, to be a genuine friend, to be a good collaborator? I was very fortunate that that was me. Mm. And so I, I very much treat uh, this industry as you don't know if the person you meet today is going to be your boss tomorrow. So you just have to meet everybody in good faith and, and try to meet and ally yourself with people who, have, who are with good people, who have cool interests that you can just nerd out with. And that if some point 10 years down the road, you end up working on a show together, you're going to make something great together. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and, and so like that's whether that's Terry, whether it's Todd Stashwick or whatever, like you find your people. Right. And as long as you find them in the spirit of like, we're all just a tribe trying to make something cool and not in the spirit of like, how can I use you? Yes. Um, you will ultimately all pay each other off, right? You'll all help you all have each other's backs. 
Um, and so, you know, that, that I think is the best, um, piece of advice, not that I was given, but that I've realized right. over the course of my career is just make honest and decent relationships with honest and decent people. And it will almost always pay off. Definitely. Well, it seems to show through the creative. I mean, Hollywood's a dog eat dog world, you know, right. people trying to get to the next place. And there's a lot of people not afraid to step on shoulders to get to where they need to be. Right. You guys seem to be uh, all, you know, all high tides raise all boats kind of yeah. mentality. Yeah. When you went to, um, when you guys started working on Splinter, that's great that they titled it that. Yeah. Um, and you realize this teamwork started coming together. What was the, what do you think was the true magic? I mean, you, you mentioned Terry and I've, I've got to realize just through talking to Matt and some of the other people that that really is a superpower, I think, is yeah. his managerial, his ability to, to be an orchestra, yeah. basically. Um, what do you think um, was the magic sauce? Because 12 Monkeys is really probably the best time travel told story. Yeah. And you know, not only is it creatively well done, but the thinking out process. When you think of a show like Lost, yeah. for example, and which got lost by the end of <laughs> right. you know, the show, but yet 12 Monkeys did not. It was very pathed out. Yeah. It yeah. was very, uh, was that a product of the team? Is Was it a product of vision? Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. I mean, it, it was everything, right? Like Terry, Terry had a really specific vision for the show that he wanted to create, and he would come in and he would have these sort of touch points. Like I want to, I, I want to hit this beat. I want to explore this story. I want this character payoff here. Um, but I, I think if you're, if you have to boil it down to like one secret sauce thing, it's that the genre of it is in some ways the easy part. Right, like you can pitch any number of completely wild time travel, timey wimey, you know, loopy, you know, uh, inceptiony, whatever mm -hmm. pitches you want, and they'll all be great, and you can make great scenes out of all of them. But what Terry really uh, understands, and I think what he builds a writer's room that ultimately really respects, is that none of that matters if you don't have character. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we would always look at every season, every scene. Uh, every story that we would think about telling from a point of view of how does it advance character? Like, how, is it, uh, how does it serve emotion? Um, uh, at what point in this are you not going to leap out of your chair and hoop and holler at the awesomeness of the genre thing, but also, like, grab the tissues because you're crying in the middle of it? And um, if you don't have that, all the cool stuff in the world doesn't mean anything. And I think that that's what Terry really understands and acknowledges was that you know he's very much a, a, a child of of the world we all grew up in. he's a child of star wars he's a child of indiana jones he's a child of big four quad popcorn mm -hmm. entertainment but he also understands um that you can take real complex uh character and emotion and heart and inject it into that and make it better and so that's really i, I think what makes 12 monkeys great we had a lot of freedom on that show to sit at a whiteboard and go okay, if we're going to get here, we can put something in the first episode that teases that, and we're going to seem like geniuses once you get to the episode 10, and all that stuff, you can you can take a couple of weeks, and you can play around with it, you can get all the mechanics of it um, worked out easier than you can. Okay, yeah, but how do you how do you make this mean something from a character level? So I think that very much is... Did sci-fi give him, you know, the room to run? Uh, yeah, I so I think, ultimately I think what ended up happening was you know, 12 Monkeys is a show that really changes season to season. Mm -hmm. Like, the first season, Terry has said this, and I agree with him, like, 
feels like a pilot episode for the three seasons that follow, right? It, it's very laying out the rules, mm-hmm. the worlds, the, uh, the, the sort of objective of the show is very clearly stated. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's got cool time travel gags. It's not trying to alienate anybody. It's trying to be a very inviting show. Um, and then it's not until, right, like season two where you start to get some of the cool, bigger mythology beats. Like, oh, oh we're, now we're really understanding the Red Forest. Oh, there's a whole time travel cult. Let's get into the realities of the witness and um, all the great stuff, like big shifts in time uh, that come with two. And I think by the time we got to the end of two, we were taking such big swings. And we were talking, like, we had now had 24, 26 episodes of time travel under our belts. We we, we could talk about it very easily. Mm. Um, someone would start pitching something, and you'd be at a point where you're like, no, you can't do that because it'll negate the thing. If he doesn't do this, then he never went back to do this. So we'd made, we'd had a second hand, right, yeah. that we'd established. Um, and that translated to scripts that I think mystified the executives. Mm. So I think they were, you know, reading these scripts going, yeah, I don't know what you're doing. Like, so uh, (laughs) we're just going to trust you. The episodes are really good. You're on budget. Uh, People seem to like it. And then when they picked up three and four back to back, Mm -hmm. um, and we really got the gift of like, you get to do 20 episodes Mm -hmm. to finish your movie, right? And you can get as, you can, you can do things because you know, you're going to have a fourth season. You can do something in 301 that doesn't pay off until 410 right like so awesome. most people don't get that gift and i don't even think we really appreciated at the time how rare that is yeah um and i think the executives were so like we don't understand time travel but this all seems like it's working mm-hmm. um that they kind of just relinquished a level of trust that you don't get in other places mm-hmm. um and so we we were like I don't think we really even understood the degree to which we were just kids who'd been left alone overnight in the mall yeah. with the key to every store. And we could just do it the way we wanted to do it. And so we rock and rolled our way through that season. And we tried to make something that was meaningful to us. And if that was true, then hopefully it'd be meaningful to the viewers. I don't think we succeeded. But I wonder if that's part of the magic of it. You know, yeah. I wonder if that's the secret sauce. Because Picard season three has a little similarity to that. Yeah. Yeah, um, because there's there was freedom because Akiva was you know doing another project yeah and uh, Alex was doing Man Fell from what, what Earth yeah Earth yeah <laughs> and from Mars where um, <laughs> and uh, and so there was a little bit of that I think for Picard season three tell me a little bit about the transition from Monkeys to Picard season two so I had done uh, four seasons of Monkeys and then in between Monkeys and Card season two, I had done two seasons of 911. So one of our writer producers on Monkeys, Kristen Rydell, um, she went from uh, Monkeys to 911. And uh, there was sort of a gap where sort of Terry was figuring out what he was going to do next and um, what was sort of next on his agenda. I was sort of like, I got a mortgage to pay. So, um, you know, Kristen said, well, why don't you come over to network, right? And it'll be a totally different experience. And it was like, we got big genre freedom to do wild, complex uh, time travel uh, over on sci-fi. And then you go to Fox, who, where you're doing straight down the middle soap. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing like, you know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock p.m. Your mom and dad have to love this soap. But the great thing about 911 was 
the framework of that show is um, there are all these really bananas, bonkers rescues. Mm-hmm. So it did feel a little like a genre show because you'd show up every day and you'd be like, well, what if a guy like chainsawed half his head off, but was kind of holding it on, but like, and then, and then you'd spend uh-huh. like, you'd spend 20 minutes being like, <clears throat> well, maybe we can do an episode about that. And, mm. and so you'd have a Google alert for every time like Florida man did something crazy, right. you know, or got him, you know, or got himself into some trouble. You'd be like, oh, that can be an emergency. And so those felt almost like fanciful genre sequences that you would then get to incorporate in, in a, a kind of a character soap opera mm. that you were doing in primetime. And so I actually really liked working on that for two seasons. It never really felt like, you know, going from cable to, you know, network. It, it, it really felt like uh, I can use all the tools. Like, it's just, you're not doing a big time travel pitch, but you are doing like, what's an insane thing that can happen to somebody and then how do you make an action sequence out of rescuing them? Right. And that show had such a sort of well-oiled, I mean, it was, all, it was chaotic for its own good, but like it, it, you would write something on like, you know, a Monday and by Friday, like it could, it could be filmed, you know, and you'd walk out on the lot and just be like, Oh my God, like the, this just is moving at a breakneck pace you never got to stop and really craft those episodes the way that we did uh on 12 monkeys where we had like weeks and months and time like right. network tv is like a beast you have to feed mm. and you're doing it in real time almost and so there was something really kind of like invigorating about like just just crank the script out make it as great as you can throw it over here start on the next one and then look out your window and watch them film the scene that you just wrote, you know, right, uh, right. a week ago or something. Like working out, kind of. Yeah. And it was cool. It was, uh, and everybody on that show was great. Peter Krause, Angela Bassett, the cast of that show are, are, were just lovely mm. human beings. The writers were amazing. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you find yourself in this position where you're like, you know, look, I, I could easily float here. This, it's very clear that this was a show that was going to go on for many, many seasons. Um, you could get very comfortable. You're making 18 episodes. You're making good money. Um, and you're sort of like, look, I could retire here, right? Like you could just do this for eight, 10 years. How many seasons the show like this is lucky enough to get? Um, and, you know, buy your house, retire, you know? Uh, but I think what then happened is my phone rang and Terry said, Hey, I got Trek. <laughs> right. And <laughs> what is that? What is that thought that goes through your head when you hear that? Uh, you, you, you watch your bank account go down real fast. Uh, you, you sit there and you go, oh man, the, the six episode, the six seasons of the show that I could have done, I'm now not going to do because you can't say no to Star Trek, right? Like when you get offered a, a seat at the table of a legacy like that, um, the value of, you know, when an, when an episode of Star Trek ends, uh, season three ends and the credits roll, um, and you get to see your name uh, as a part of that, um, that's kind of priceless, right? Like it's worth everything. Mm. Um, because ultimately if you never do anything, you've contributed to something that will outlast you, right? Like hopefully somebody, you know, uh, years from now, wherever I am in my career, in the world, in my life, will revisit these episodes and be moved or excited or touched in a way or 
um, affected. And, and that's kind of the point, right? Like you hope you can do that for somebody in your career. So we're still talking about DC Fontana. So. Yeah. So, you know, you're like, look, if, if you can, you can't say no. Mm. So Terry calls and says, they're bringing me in for, for season two. Not quite sure what the arrangement's going to be, right? I'll be the Akib is there. Um, and we're going to figure out whether it's me running it, whether it's us running it, whether it's us planning season three and helping him with season two, like, that those logistics were all in the midst of being worked out, and then the pandemic really threw a wrench into that even further. But you know, when that call comes, you gotta say yes, you can't say no. So, yeah. um, so you know, within a, a couple of weeks, I just found myself sitting at a table uh, with a bunch of other Trek nerds talking Star Trek, trying to figure out what Q was up to. You know, Ooh. so um, yeah, it was a it was a big shift. That's cool. Yeah. And then uh, so a lot of the Twelve Monkeys writing team came back. For Trek, right? Or? Yes, not a, initially. Um, so uh, Travis Fickett uh, from 12 Monkeys was involved uh, a little bit in season two. Um, and then uh, we brought back uh, Sean Tretta for season three um, uh, because Sean was suddenly available and was over at CBS. And uh, so we were like, you come back into the fold. Let's just make this a family affair. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, and then our, our, our editor, our composer, you know, Todd Stafford, all those sort of, mm. uh, you know, sort of 12 monkeys family members, we would cycle in where we could. Um, but by the, you know, for season three, it was sort of me and Terry and Sean were sort of the core 12 monkeys vets. Uh, and then we had a whole other staff of just really terrific, wonderful writers, um, who all just showed up every day to, to deliver their A game. So. Mm. Um, you know, we were really blessed to have, uh, you know, the, sh the shorthand between the three of us and then all these other great points of view um, that really added to that conversation. So Picard season three. Yeah. Um, you guys end up uh, getting the band back together. And um, can you just walk us through kind of the, the thought process? Because here you are, your kids at the mall, you're free. There's no parents kind of to, <laughs> to keep you reined in. Uh, were you guys aware of that? And how did that go to the initial story building? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was, there was, I, I, so I think the, the strength of Picard as a series, um, and, and some audiences, different sections of the audience respond to different seasons differently. And Picard as a series really has, a, are three separate visions. You know, Michael Shaban really was the vision for season one. Akiva really wanted to tell the sort of psycho-emotional story of season two. And I think Terry's thought was always, well, look, the version of Picard I want to see is the, the TNG movie, that the 10-hour the, the TNG movie that we never got to see. Mm. Um, the follow-up to Nemesis. I, I want to know where are all these other characters. But I don't want to do it in a way that feels pandering. I don't want to do it in a way that just brings them all together and does it without saying anything new. And I don't think we knew early on whether we were going to be allowed to do that, whether financially that was going to work. You know, you're talking about bringing a bunch of people from the legacy cast together. What's that going to mean budgetarily? So, you know, there are a lot of conversations very, very early on as we were sort of transitioning out of season two of here's the ideal of what we would like. Here's the the gold star, the north the north star that we're aiming for. But then, if we don't achieve that, what could the show be? Is it a ship show? Is it whatever? And then, through this sort of unlikely series of events of just people being busy with different things and 
um, you know, sort of power transitions and all of that, it became very aware. Um, I think we can pull this off the way that Terry wants to pull it off. And so we really sort of started to solidify and drill down on, okay, let's send this out, you know, with what we think all the fans really sort of are going to want, some of whom probably wanted it from the beginning anyway. Um, but we have to do it with intention and meaning and, and be able to say something about how time does and does not change people the older they get and, and how are these friendships tested. And So you were cognizant uh, of the yeah. fan experience. Like that was something that yeah. you put up on your shoulder or, you know, it's in the room and you're like, okay. Yeah. You know, I, the fan thought process, you know, we're going to, we got to respect, you know, the idea that fans are, you know, what do they want? Is that, right. kind of, that was kind of on the, because you guys are fans. Yeah. So it's like, what do we want? Yeah, in a way. So. Well, we were a, you. You can't live in a world with Twitter in it and not understand how the fans feel about the franchise, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there are diehard fans of Discovery, and there are people who diehard do not like it. Mm -hmm. The same can be said of season one of Picard. The same can be said of season two, right? So it is a very large umbrella uh, under which it is virtually impossible to please everybody. Um, and so I think what we figured out early on was we just have to tell the story that means something to us mm -hmm. and we have to tell it as best we can to the highest level of quality. Mm -hmm. And if our intentions are good, um, and we're bringing our histories to it as fans of this particular period of Star Trek, not just like TNG in our own lives, but like 25th, 24th, 25th century Star Trek. Um, if we if we do something that tickles us and we do it really well, that's all we could do. And hopefully that'll mean something to the fans. Because if you try to just sort of like bespoke a season of TV so that to what you think the fans want, you're always going to miss the mark. And it's always going to feel pandery and it's never going to feel quite right. right. So Terry's thing was, look, all I can do is What's the story I want to tell as a Trek fan of this show in this era at this time with these characters? And let's just tell the best version of that we can tell. And then we'll cross our fingers and hope that that resonates with people. Yeah. It seems to have done that. It has. So, yeah, yeah. No, it's people love it. You know, like you said, there's some people who hate this, some people who like this. Pretty much everybody likes this. Yeah. So, it, which seems, is great. it seems so. Yeah. That's what the fan base needs is everybody, something everybody can, can get behind. Right. And I think you guys have accomplished that. So, when you're sitting in front of the puzzle and all the pieces are scattered at the very beginning, you're getting ready to sit down and figure out the borders, right? Right, And you've got this story you want to tell. How hard is it to piece that together initially? And does it get easier as you flesh through it? Or is that beginning part where you're trying to figure out the story the hardest part? Um, no. It, weirdly, I think we kind of knew... We had those ten pole moments. We kind of knew where we were going. We kind of knew a couple of things in the middle. We knew where we were going to begin. Um, Terry, I think, really always had a sense that Beverly would be the first person we see. We would do this sort of like Linda Hamilton version of that character. Um, we knew we wanted it to be about Jack and and, and Picard's lineage um, because it, it it felt like you know, the next generation, right? So that feels like the, the, the story, the theme that we have to, to tell, right? How do we, how do, how does time change us? And then how do we take that experience and make it into a torch that we can pass to the people who are coming up behind us? Um, so we, we knew all of that. I would say the biggest challenge was when you have 
you know, how many series, 30 years of Star Trek lore, um, individual episodes, characters, uh, references, like what some folks would call the member berries, but what we just called the stuff we love from Star Trek. Right. Um, okay, well, that's a lot, right? And because you're doing a story that's inherently about history mm-hmm. and how time changes you, you can't get away with not doing those things. Like you have to reference the past if you're going to talk about what it means to move into the future. And so we knew, like we've got this whole menu of ingredients from Star Trek to cook with. Yeah. You know, is it Rolaren? Is it Changelings? Is it whatever? And there are, for every one thing that we decided to use, there were a hundred things we could have used and didn't. So, you know, that was the hardest part, was just figuring out, okay, what do we want to see? And you make a big list of all the things that you want to play around with. And then you're like, okay, of all these things, what actually thematically works with the story we're trying to tell? It's like, okay, Changelings, that works, because it's about identity and it's about that. And you're like, okay, what is an unresolved thread from Picard's past where he wouldn't necessarily trust them if they came on board the ship? Great, Rolaire, that's that. Like, so you figure out all the ways that they relate to the story you're trying to tell. So I think that was actually probably the biggest challenge of like just the word vomit of references that you can use and then going through them and go like, yeah, but what should we use? Yeah. Yeah. And just having some restraint, right? Because you don't want to. How much binge watching of Star Trek happens before this uh, this series goes down? You know, it's strangely, not a lot, because I think we would go back and reference as we went. And I think, you know, I certainly watched a bunch. Everyone would watch a couple of runs of episodes on their own. But it's not like we, we collectively got in the room and was just like, let's put it on and just watch a whole season. Because I think sometimes that like bleeds into what you're trying to do. So sometimes in trying to write the next chapter of something, you realize, oh, I'm just inadvertently writing a chapter that's already been written, you know? Um, And I think, you know, that's especially difficult when you're crafting a season that in some ways is intentionally homaging and nodding to previous stories and tones and things like that. So, you know, Terry is very much a fan of nautical Star Trek. And so I think a lot of the things we did to make it uh, to make that story true in three and four and the, to feel like a submarine movie and all that, um, it draws, it was always going to draw comparisons to Pond. So, you know, the last thing you want to do is find yourself accidentally cribbing too much from stuff that came before. Like, you want to use the foundation, recontextualize it, reinterpret, say something new about it. But what you don't want to do is just go, oh man, because I watched that episode three weeks ago, I, the, the thing I'm pitching is just, I just saw that, you know, um, so there was a little bit of intentionality to not um, dive too deeply back into it so that we didn't accidentally steal from it. Right. But just to factual fact check yourself. But as we were going along, if there was a story or an episode that we were drawing from or felt relevant, we'd go, we'd research it. We'd really try to build out, um, you know, uh, so that we we were getting our universe right. So canon was a thing that was was at the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, canon, I mean, canon is a difficult, it's difficult in the Star Trek world, right? Because you've got Memory Alpha and you've got an endless resource, you've got all the the, the folks who work for the broader franchise and they're all there. And sometimes even those things don't agree, right? So there there are moments where you have to just make decisions of, well, when did this uniform come into or out of uh, phase or... or 
did the, what year did this thing happen or whatever? And you kind of just have to make decisions that are right for the canon, for the story. Sorry, canon decisions that are right for the story um, that you're trying to tell, that are right for the emotion of the scene. Um, and, and you know, kind of hope that where there are inconsistencies, you know, because nothing in a universe this big, like, fits perfectly, right? Um, Doctor Who, especially, is a great example of, like, you could go into Doctor Who and go, that should never be that, or that's inconsistent with right. this. But, like, ultimately, if the emotional story you're telling and the yeah. character story is true, um, you will be forgiven, but that is not always true on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, uh, some of the, the sort of places where the dots don't line up. Mm. Um, but we were very conscious of trying to sort of be as accurate as we could be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and even then things slip by and you're sort of like, oh, I didn't realize that there was a second source for that or whatever. Well, I think in it's all a tricky fairness, minefield. Yeah. No, but in all fairness, I mean, Star Trek fan base is of any fan base is the pickiest, nitpickiest group because I don't know if it's part of the mythology. It's part of how Star Trek fans are. There's a very science technical right. aspect to it that people are like, wait a sec, this doesn't do that. So you, I think you get a lot of that. And you guys really... Um, massage through that so well there's no plot holes right in picard season three that you guys have like carefully and i think it's like got that 12 monkeys dna yeah where you 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 said well look we we had to go through time and right. make it all work i mean this is a walk in the park well you know it's there there we we try to have the opposite side of every conversation mm -hmm. in the room so if we were pitching if you're making a strong pitch to do something you you want someone on the other side of the table going Okay, here's how that might not work, mm -hmm. and then you, and then you just get to whether it's small things like, yeah, but how is the uh, holodeck operating uh, on a system on a, mm -hmm. that doesn't have any power? And then he goes, okay, well, that, that we have to answer that, right? Like, mm -hmm. so we we have these arguments with ourselves to kind of vet everything as tightly as we as we possibly can. Um, but it's interesting that the, the thing you say about nitpicking is it's easy on on some level mm. like uh, uh you, there's a gut level as a writer where you want to get annoyed by it sometimes right like i was reading a review or watching a review the other day that was talking about 305 and you know was praising all the things you wanted to praise and then was like yeah but rose wig you know or whatever um and part of you wants to go well wait you not liking rose wig is as important as you liking the complex emotional arc that we've meticulously like, and and you want to be peeved by that. But I think what's really more important to do is to look past your own sort of gut reaction to the the fact that this is a fandom to which even the smallest thing deeply matters to them, right? So you can't dismiss it. Like you have to honor it, right? Like if 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 Rose Wig matters to you because that character matters to you it speaks to an even greater awareness you have to have of the responsibility to get the story right in the first place um because you know that it, it, it's a passionate fan base they care about this stuff right. and they care about this stuff at the most granular level i actually think it's kind of a beautiful thing it can be maddening sometimes but i think it speaks to the the passion and the love that the fan base brings to the table and if you're not bringing as much passion and love to the table, don't sit down in the first place. Yeah. Don't pitch a show. Don't write an episode. Because if you can't match that enthusiasm, if you don't sit down with the intention of paying off their love, um, you're you're you've already lost before you so that's what we try to do. Yeah. So yeah. shows. Yeah. yeah. It's uh 
It's, I think it's a key. You yeah. Know? Like uh, the fact that if you're creating a product, uh, if you don't care about that product as much as the people who are buying the product, then you're going to lose something. Sure. Um, and you guys have just fantastically done that. Um, by the way, this isn't going to air until later, so we can talk okay. about you know, all the episodes, cool. which is kind of nice. Sure. Um, so when you're laying out the story, <laughs> right, and uh, and you've, you've got this whole thing and you've decided, all right, um, Patrick Stewart, and I know Terry's talked about this on different occasions, you know, he had to come to him and say, you know, because Patrick didn't want to do right. um, this version of Trek initially, but, yeah. but Terry, he put his maestro uh, wand out <laughs> and, and he said, uh, and he, but what's I found really interesting is it's not just um, Patrick, but all of the actors, all of, all of the, the legacy TNG actors are very grateful for the job you guys have done this season. I mean, you, the, you can see be, yeah. it coming through like, like you don't usually see. What do you attribute to that? I mean, was it just the experience that they had working with you guys and that love and care that you have or, you know, the fact that somebody thought to br- bring them back and finish the story? What do you think? I, I think a lot of it is, you know... Patrick, from Patrick's point of view, um, you know, he really wanted to find Picard at a different point of his life, concerned about different things, exploring different things, and that if we were going to get to this kind of story that was a slightly more, shall we say, like traditional TNG structure, mm. um, we had to earn it. We couldn't start there for him, you know. And I think so. By the time we got to season three, I think he felt like we had. We had said enough about the character and 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 explored a kind of enough in those first two seasons that he felt we had earned our way back mm-hmm. to the stuff that was really familiar, and then we could close those loops and some of those doors and 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 leave the series behind with the sort of reason that people came into it to begin with. And so I think with the rest of the cast. Part of it was just they they love each other, you know they they know each other so well, and they're with each other all the time, and they're out they're with each other at conventions, and yet it had been so long since they'd worked together. And so I think there's just an appreciation for the opportunity to sort of get back, get the band back together and work at all. But I also think that, you know, these are people who, have to bear the weight of iconography, right? They have to go to these conventions and defend these characters. And I think they started to see scripts that were presenting these characters that they had lived with for so long in a slightly more adult and complex way that not only were they surprised by like, oh, these characters are being challenged in unique ways. I think they thought, oh, I'll be challenged in unique ways. And they all embraced that challenge and they brought their A game. I mean, I don't think Riker has ever been better. I mean, I don't think Frakes has ever acted as good as he has. He's brought his absolute best to this season. And, um, you know, I, 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 that I, is a testament to him as an actor. And we're blessed and fortunate that he, he has said that that's a testament to the scripts. I'm not very flattered and I, and I hope that's true. But I, I think they were really invigorated by the, the, the ways that these characters have changed. And um, it felt like it breathed life into them as actors. They were able to play some new things um, and, and, and explore some new uh, uh, territory. And, and they really showed up and 
did an amazing job with it. So, how hard was it to get Jonathan from behind the camera and back out in front of it? Um, I mean, Terry convinced him pretty quickly because Terry is a pretty convincing dude. But <laughs> you know, I, I think that the pitch was, you're older, you're more adult, um, and the rule that sort of Gene had back in the day of minimal conflict. Um, we're we're now going to explore these characters in an era of television where conflict is encouraged. Um, and we're not ever going to put them at loggerheads that we can't get them back from. Right. Um, they're just, they're going to have conversations they've never had before. They're going to uh, express feelings and emotions that they've never expressed before, but they're still going to be themselves. Mm. Um, it's always going to default back to Trek. Uh, it's always going to feel like it's in the spirit of the thing. Um, and, you know, we're not going to make you guys caricatures and we're not going to make you guys different people. Right. We're just going to make you more complicated people, more complex people. And I think that they ultimately responded to that. Yeah. And, you know, and it's not really fair to say that Gene didn't like conflict at all. I know that's kind of a, a thing a, they said. Yeah. Kirk was always frustrated right. with Spock and McCoy's, you know, pissed off at Spock. And, right. you know, there was there was some there was some in stuff. It was never permanent, though, which is what's great right. about what's happened here is. They're they're having a moment. It's personal. Yeah, they both have personal things at stake. You got Riker, who's lost a child. That's yeah. you know, going through this you know midlife crisis, and you have Picard, who's found a child, and now he wants to protect that child. It's like a whole thing. Yeah, I think serialized conflict is the thing. You know, they could have conflict within an episode, right. and then it would always be resolved by the end of the episode. They might agree and disagree on a command decision or something. But there were very few arcs uh, in in TNG that really was like. There's an existential crisis that's following a character across an arc of episodes, um, which is what we can play with here. You know, two, three, and four, and Riker's sort of progression. But again, it always leads you back to a Trek moment, right? It always leads you back to space jellyfish, yeah. um, which is pure Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that was, whether it was the actors or whether it was the audience, it was about communicating to them, you can trust us. Um, that in those moments where we're departing from the pattern you're used to, right? Like, well, at this point in the episode, they would have resolved their conflicts by now. Don't worry. We're going to get to that resolution. We're not, we're not going dark. We're not, you know, we're not going to take this to a, a, a different place. We're just going to take our time to get there and tell a little bit more of a nuanced story at a, a slower pace. Keep watching. Yeah. Keep yeah. watching. Trust us. Um, speaking of trust us, what was the, uh, when you guys talked about people who were going to come back mm -hmm. as characters, we knew the main TNG, you know, crew was going to come back. Um, you know, what was it about bringing back Michelle Forbes and uh, you got um, Tim Rusts and you've got, you know, a lot of the characters that you did bring back. Were those yeah. intentional? Was it just easier to bring those characters back? What was the... No, I mean, I think it was who were the characters that would best foil our main cast, right? And at that point in uh, episode five in the season, mm -hmm. you really needed someone to step on board that ship that Picard was at the height of distrusting. Like, the person he would have distrusted the most mm -hmm. at a time when, you know, you can't trust anybody. Now is the person in whose life he has to put his hands. Mm -hmm. So when you ask yourself that question, because that's just what you know you need from a story perspective, the answer is pretty easy. Like, what what is the unresolved sort of conflict from TNG that that he never got to put sort of a pin in? Mm -hmm. um, and that's Roe. So Roe makes a lot of sense. Um, who is who is the best person from Seven's legacy to hand her the torch to carry on? That was a Tuvok, you know. And so you knew 
okay, well, we need to set that up a little bit so that we could pay it off later. So it, it all came from um, things that we knew needed to happen to serve the stories of our main cast. Mm -hmm. And then choosing, like I said, choosing the ingredients from the menu of characters that would then best do that for them. So, Interesting. Yeah. So the the admiral that you have at the end of the show, I just she was in one. Of, uh, she was in the Borg episodes. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember. Shelby. Yeah, Shelby. Yeah. 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 Um, so was she intentional because of the Borg return? Is that why she became yeah, the admiral? A little bit, but also I think you know there was that, but it was also you wanted you you knew you needed someone to set the stakes mm -hmm. of what was happening there, um, and you probably needed to lose somebody, and so I, I think there was a sense of like who from Trek lore can we lose where the fans won't riot? Like, you're not going to put Janeway on a ship that explodes. Right. Um, fans will freak out. <laughs> yeah. But you're like, you know, Shelby is a meaningful character who mm -hmm. will represent that there are incredible stakes uh, going on here. And so, you know, that, that felt like a natural one to use. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for not using the name. No, of course. We would have all freaked out. <laughs> right. Uh, but no, no. We would have lost the trust, I <laughs> yeah, think, there. Like, yeah. Can't, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I got to tell you, were you guys ever afraid? So, the vines, I kept calling them vines, and we we're, we were sitting there. <laughs> Red vines. We're, right. Yeah, we were sitting there watching it. and uh, Quizlet. And uh, <laughs> uh, we'll cut this out. Um, you know how we saw it, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're sitting there and and he's like, you guys don't know? You don't know? And I'm like, really? I'm like, they look like vines to me. You know, so right. like the whole time, were you guys ever worried with the female uh, telling Jack to come home, the female voice and all these things, and then the vines, which, you know, look like, yeah, yeah. you know, were you ever afraid that you were maybe almost giving it away a little bit too soon? That's what was oh. Bev's voice too. Yeah. That was the, that was the tap dance, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um. We also weren't tremendously afraid of people being a little ahead of it. Mm. Um, you know, obviously we, we wanted it to be a huge surprise, to be super impactful when it happens. Uh, and I think most people will be and have been um, kind of caught off guard yeah. by that. But, you know, so what we did was like, what's the visual metaphor that kind of communicates that idea? <laughs> um, but it could be several different things. Um, and so, you know, that's what we settled on, making it Bev's voice, mm -hmm. um, doing all the things that we could to disguise that. And then we always knew that sort of like Troy would be the right character to then kind of come in and open the door that then sheds light on what exactly and all of that means. Okay. So we knew, you know, that there would be some folks in the audience that would have a sense of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time. There is a sense of like once you catch on, like even if you're an episode or two ahead of it, you're like, oh my god, they're yes. doing it, you know. Yeah. And and so once they turn the card, it's not surprise. It's like, yes, we're in the end game. That's awesome. Hopefully, yeah, um, that that's where the fans are. So you know, we were okay if you'd put the puzzle together a little early. Um, hopefully, you're just anticipating that you're right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and uh, and if you didn't, then hopefully you're just massively surprised. So, there's there's yeah. a smattering of fans right now as we're doing this at episode five, going yeah. into episode six. That are like, there's Borg guys. There's I see, there's some Borg stuff, but nobody, everybody's like ignoring them. So right. Like, right. They're, it's not taking any form. And I'm like I'm like going like this. I'm like, oh my god, what if somebody you know the the Reddit posts start coming out, you know and but uh, so far, so good. Nobody's ignoring the Right. Well, there's. It's funny because there's a couple. You know, there's things that we'll reference a couple times. There's a couple of tiny 
references to Picard's synthetic body in the early mm. episodes, just to kind of remind folks that I think people thought were just throwaways. Like, yeah, yeah you know, they put it out there. They, they, uh, Dave Cullen has a, a phrase I like, they hung a lantern on it. Yes. Um, but we hang a lantern on it because it's important, right? And I don't think a lot of fans, as we have this conversation at five, really understand in about an episode and a half how important that that little bit of mythology that they thought we were just blowing past right. is actually going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we, it is a balance of like, how many times do you have to remind somebody of something so that it's properly set up without tipping off yeah. that it's the thing you're leaning into? So, Whose idea was it to stick so many spoilers in the L cars, but you don't realize they're spoilers till after you watch the episodes? I think it, it was, was all fantastic. Terry. I think that was all Terry. Um, was just, yeah, let the Easter eggs play out, you know? And then again, even if you're ahead of it, yeah. you're just sort of like, huh, I wonder how that... Mm-hmm. End up, ends up fact. I wonder how those musical notes end up factoring in or whatever. Yeah. When you watch it at the end, after you've seen everything, you're like, this, this, everything's laid out. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I someone I remember after the first episode aired, um, someone who with some musical knowledge must have just been like, oh, that's awesome. The song, the data whistles or whatever, yeah. they put that in there, and no one ever stopped to think like, I wonder if it's referencing something you're going to see right. later in the show. Yeah, next so, episode, in fact. It's, yeah. it's great when you can do that. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, t- I love Terry's. He says, uh, why? He w- when he went to the execs and he's like, uh, why do you want to bring this guy back? You know, from Moriarty. Yeah. And he's like, because I want to. Right. You know, because he's, Cause it's awesome. But I want to. Yeah, because it's awesome. Yeah. Um, and little things like that. Um, uh, do you think fans, now that we're through it, do you think fans expected Moriarty a little more in the show? Do you think they'll be... How do you think they'll feel about kind of his play in that? Um, I do think they expected him a little bit. And I, and I think maybe that was kind of the point. Mm. Um, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't be honest, right, about who Brent was playing. Yeah. Um, and so, but you also don't want to lie to the audience. So you want to say, okay, yeah, he's Lore. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like, Lore is in this. And uh, and then so, you know, we're like, let's let's put Moriarty in there. And then if fans want to create a whole story about what that means, it'll take the spotlight off of the other half of that episode, which is revealing that Data is around. Yeah. So if you think that the evil AI on Daystrom is Moriarty, terrific. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we were kind of happy to, you know, kind of playfully mislead a little mm-hmm. bit um, to kind of preserve some of our secrets for the season because you have to. Yeah. Um, Stephen Moffat, Doctor Who, again, is a great example of of uh, a showrunner. You know, there's a great saying in Doctor Who, the Doctor lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stephen Moffat would kind of say, sometimes so do I. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he'd be asked questions and he'd give completely false answers. Um, you know, so that the fans wouldn't, being spoiled yeah um or would would go down one path and then go hey you lied to me that i didn't know that was going to happen um and you know sometimes there's a way to do that playfully and respectfully um because you're doing it in the service of keeping the fans level of enjoyment uh where you want it to be because i think in this day of streaming and interviews and podcasts Mm -hmm. and like the immediacy of being able to go on twitter and say i've got a theory is it right Mm-hmm. Um, either if the showrunner doesn't answer it, that's like quiet confirmation that like, well, Terry didn't say I was wrong, right. so I think I'm right. And then if he says you're no, you're not right, then they're like, well, Terry lied or whatever, you know. But mm-hmm. I always err in the favor of well, if he lied so that you enjoyed the episode more when it aired, 
fine. Say you thank know? you. So, um, <laughs> you know, we really want to preserve the experience for people. We don't want people's curiosity to spoil it for themselves. Right. So, you know, if you figure out those Easter eggs mm. uh, at the end of the the L cars, and you're like, "Oh, why is that there?" and it, and then and you spin some theories, and you're proven to be re- and you've proven to be right. Um, we want you to feel rewarded that you were ahead and, and you solved the puzzle, yeah. but we don't want to just tell you, right. uh, you know, ahead. And you of don't time. really ever know like, for sure. That's anyways. not fun. Yeah. You know, yeah. until you're like, oh, I was right. You yeah. know what I mean? So yeah, it takes watching yeah. everything to understand. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, and I think the Moriarty thing was interesting because you immediately handed off to whatever data is, right. you know, and I think, so people go from, oh yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, what's going on here? You know, right. so the, the, you're right. The attention focuses over to what's. You almost have a story within a story yeah. that's happening there. And um, we do that a couple times in the season. I think like Vatic is another great example. When you get to the end of episode eight, you might be thinking, well, what's the rest of the show about? Like they just killed the big bad, mm-hmm. uh, but there's two more hours to go. So, you know, and and I think um, Moriarty is a little bit of that as well. Like mm-hmm. he's introduced and you lean forward and you're like, oh, okay, here it starts. Mm-hmm. And then he's defeated and you're like well what was that about mm-hmm. and then you realize well they were they were kind of misdirecting me over here because they wanted to reveal this right um so you know we we try to do that in a way that doesn't feel like it's let the audience down mm-hmm. but it's given the audience a kind of cool surprise and by way of something that was like interesting in and of itself right so. wow well yeah. done um going into uh killing captain shaw um <laughs> i feel like I'm sorry that is going to be the biggest thing that people are going to freak out about. Did you guys know that this was going to happen? Did you know Shaw was going to be this popular? I, I want to say yes, but no. Um, we, we knew we were creating a great character. Mm. We knew we had a terrific actor who was going to play him. Um, and I think we certainly hoped that by the time you got to that moment in the season... You would have arced him and people were just going to be on board, you know, that. But I think we thought, like, they would have just gotten on board, like, the episode before. Right? People were on board from, like, episode one. They were just like, yeah. I love this guy. Yeah, um, you know, and so uh, it certainly, I don't think, worried us at all, right? Because you really want, it just makes that moment more impactful. Mm. Um, I think the only way that it ever worried us was subsequently we were like, oh, I think fans might riot. Like, you know, um, and, yeah, but I I'm think the, it, it all builds to, you know, it's your ship now, seven of nine. Right. Right. And, and if you have, if you have correctly followed the trajectory of that arc, you realize that my love for this character is to make that moment, um, as meaningful as it possibly could be. It does. So, you know, um, I, I, I certainly think, uh, you know, the, the, that there are, uh, there is an awareness of how much people have come to love Shaw. Mm-hmm. And there is a certainly a willingness on our part to figure out a way to tell more stories with that character. Right. Um, we have fanfic discussions amongst ourselves about our own show. Oh, that's great. About like, oh man, how do you bring Shaw back? Right. right? <laughs> um, so, you know, but yeah, but we've really, we've genuinely had those conversations like in success mm. uh given how much people love this character what can we do whether it's going backward in time forward in time to to continue telling stories um with with todd stashwick and with shaw 
because people have just gone over them and fallen in love, um, which, by the way, is as much a testament to uh, Todd as it is to us and the writing. I mean, uh, I, I, we did our best, you know, to give him a great arc, to give him interesting lines, and then he just took the script and pointed to the bleachers and sent it sailing over the, you know, uh, over into the parking lot. So he's terrific. I don't know if fans realize that part of the reason he's a terrific actor. Yeah. He's done tons of work yeah. over the years. But he loves Star Trek. Oh, to his like, core. Like, he's he's a nerd hard. Yeah. You know, and honestly, most actors in Star Trek, not to disappoint fans, but they aren't really big Star Trek fans generally. You know, maybe, oh, yeah. you know, Michael Dorn is a big fan. And, yeah. But most of them aren't. But Todd is a big fan. And him putting totally. on the captain's uniform was a big deal for him. Todd, yeah. in many ways, is sort of the actor's equivalent of Terry. Mm. Like, you know, Terry is very much... Uh, a an influence smoothie of like everything he grew up loving, you know, whether it was Star Wars, whether it was Indiana Jones, like all that stuff is just in his DNA as a storyteller, and that in the same way is in Todd's DNA as an actor. Like there is as much Bill Murray from Ghostbusters as there is in Shaw as there is uh, Star Trek lore, and so you know he he just interprets and channels all of that love through the performance and and it shows in, in a way that the audience just it's authentic it's real it's honest yeah um and i think it, it gave the character a depth that like we could not have done anything more to give them uh, give him on the page so uh, he's just amazing to give the fans something to hope have <laughs> you in those conversations found a way you could bring it back without telling us how you would do it have you guys come up with something we we we've we've got nerd ways that satisfy us. Okay. Um, but you know, it 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 would all depend on what that story would be. Okay. You know, I mean, what's what 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 would the framework for a more um, Star Trek in the sort of Terryverse be? And then you know, if if it's within a certain set of parameters, then we kind of know how we could do that. Um, but uh, but I think certainly. Todd is now a part of the family. He's part of the legacy of Star Trek, whether it's comic books, novels, whatever. Right. I am sure there will be a life for Shaw, uh, you know, in the franchise uh, in the future. So um, he's he's made his mark for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Did you guys know Borg from the beginning? Was that an yeah. obvious end to Lacutus and and Picard's final story? Yeah, yeah. We knew we knew from the, we knew that from the beginning, and that was part of Terry's vision, right? Which is it's. It's a little bit about. I think there's a conversation in six that 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 um, Jack has with Picard, where he says, "Maybe I got the good bits too, right? Like, there's a lot of me that's mom, and there's a lot of me that's me, but there's a lot of me I'm starting to recognize. I never knew where that came from, and I think it's you. Mm-hmm. Um, and thematically, the season really is about the good and bad that we pass on, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in our legacy and our lives, or whether it's in our DNA, or whether it's in how we teach other people to act and behave." Um, and so like thematically that felt not only like what's the door you have to close on Picard's journey, what's the door you have to, uh, on his Star Trek Starfleet journey, what's the door you need to close on his personal journey. It also felt like, you know, fans wanted some resolution to that story. Never quite felt it was over. Um, I think the biggest challenge was how to integrate what we wanted to do with the board were with what season two left off with right. um, and, and whether to lean into it or to kind of say, 
you know, look, that that happened. That story exists out here on the framework of this story. And we just kind of tried to focus on the lane that we chose. Yeah, and... Shaw let us know exactly where that stands. We're yeah. good, yeah. Yeah, you're good. You know, <laughs> that one little line that's like, that don't worry it. about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we can pick up that thread in future seasons, other shows, other media, whatever. But um, for the purposes of this season, this is the story we're telling. I don't know how you guys came up with the idea of using it through the transporters, but that was a mind-blowing moment for us. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know who pitched that. I, I had had... I had had a transporter gag I wanted to do in season two um, that uh, that I'll tell you. OK, I'll, I, I wanted someone to throw a live grenade into the transporter fizzle of an enemy that was coming on board a ship. And then when they materialize, they grab their chest and they look down and they explode. Oh my God. Um, and that was, I think, might have been one of my stupider or awesomer pitches. Mm-hmm. I can't tell. But that idea of something being inserted into the the, the sort of actual physical process yeah. of what's happening um, really, like, interested me and, and some of the other writers. And we started talking about, like, well, what is the really kind of interesting end game to that idea. Yeah. And that kind of then evolved by, you know, a multitude into a kind of version of where we got by the end of the season. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you want an example of how like a dumb gag can become a really big, that's a great writer's room, mm. sort of like A to B to C to D to E, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah. Cause it's so organic. It's so natural and it makes sense. It, it ties the story together. I just, you know, we were blown away. Well, we we knew we had to, Terry always knew we had to make it a generational threat, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it couldn't be about, I mean, it is to some degree about, like, Earth is under siege, right? And that's, that certainly is its own set of stakes, right? But but it's not just Earth, it's it's our, it is the next generation itself that is the target, that is, that is threatened by this, by this process that's going on. And so... You know, we really had to figure out amongst the writers the mechanism by which um, that would even be possible. Mm-hmm. And the transporter, you know, came to us pretty early on in terms of it's something we all, every person interacts with. It's the one commonality. At right. some point, they've all gone through that thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was that, that, that was kind of the, the mechanism that allowed us to execute the story we needed to tell. So. Bones would be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, good point. Um, how important was it to bring the D back? Oh, super important. Mm-hmm. Super important. Like, that moment on the bridge. Um, you, can't, you, can't not, uh, you can't honor that story without, you know, whether you... I, mean, I'll, I will welcome anybody who wants to say that that's the ultimate fan surface. And I will just go, yeah, yes, it yeah, is. it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, and you wanted it and you know you want it, mm-hmm. right? Like it, it works thematically. It works narratively, right? And that was important too, right? We knew we wanted to do it, mm-hmm. but they couldn't just like go and get the Enterprise D because they thought it would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so it made perfect sense that it's, it's the one thing not tied to the system. It's the ship they have to get. Right. Um, and, you know, we were deep into making our season mm-hmm. um, when Top Gun came out. And mm-hmm. at the end of that movie, he goes and he gets the plane, the old plane, you know. And you're just sort of like, yeah, this is obviously, this is a story beat in this world that we're living in where we are telling stories that are so 
influenced by continuations of um, finales to the things that were important to us as creators, um, these are story beats that audiences really find meaningful and not pandering right. if you can make them work within the context of the story that you're telling. Which it does. Perfect. And so that's what we need to do. We need to figure out a reason not just to do the Enterprise D for fun, yeah, but to do it in a way that it was the only place they could go. Yeah. Um, well, you and, took fan service to a whole nother level. As soon as you got a certain uh, um, cloaking device from a certain vessel <laughs> yeah. yes. from Star Trek yes. IV. The ultimate, uh, Rod- right. <laughs> you know, the ultimate Roddenberry. And we were just, I think we looked at each other and said, just kill me now. Jeez. I just, we can we're die done. happy. Yeah, we're done, we're done. Season, yeah. season six, uh, season six, episode six is a real balancing act because it is in so many ways kind of about, you know, all the references. It's about that and so you when you know that you're going to do an episode that takes place in area 51 that take you know that is about going back to the past to solve the problem of the future like you know you're stepping out into the minefield of um we've got to make right the right choices here this has to be fun it has to be entertaining but it can't just be like us playing around with the toys because we want to right um because otherwise you're just going to get slammed for it's nothing but member berries. It doesn't, you know, they're, they're, they're just, they're just tugging at us. They're not, you know, you, you have to make it mean something. And so that was really the challenge with that. And it's critical episode. And without and, it, it doesn't work. Yeah. It's gotta yeah. be inherent to the plot. It's gotta be inherent to the emotion. Mm. Um, on top of being fun, mm. you know, attack tribbles. Sure. Why not? That's why fun. Not? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there were, you know, there were much bigger, uh, more expensive versions of that script that have been written. Um, I remember writing a version of 306 that was a little, little bit longer, a little more expensive, um, where uh, when the changelings attacked, um, Worf lets the attack trouble out. Um, and there were some hijinks with the, like, the attack trouble, like, tussling with the changelings and, like, nice. um, you know, and there were, like, fun beats there and, you know, but ultimately, like, you get into the script and you're like, what's just enough to be fun and referential and reflect back and then what's too much? And yeah. then you dial in the balance and you go from there, so. Yeah, I would say the museum is probably yeah. the highlight of the whole thing. Yeah. You pause, you go, pause, pause, let me look around that thing right. and see everything that's there. Beautiful, you guys killed it. Yeah. Um, I don't care what anybody says. They can say fan service all they want. We all wanted to see that. So yeah. uh, it'll be the last time it happens. So yeah. it was beautiful. Um, Enterprise G. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of people who started us out going, are we going to have Enter- Enterprise E? We're going to see the F? We get to the G in this one. Yeah. And um, I don't know if anybody at the end of this thing got to the point where they saw the ship rolling out and they saw who was on the bridge. And you see that name on, yeah. the, on the vessel. You know, everybody's thinking it's the Titan. It's going yeah, to be yeah. the Titan, right? And then you see it's the Enterprise. I mean, not a dry eye in the room. Oh, no. You know? No. Yeah, I mean, it's just... You've got to... I mean, that's the, that's the legacy we grew up on. That's yeah. the ship. And it, and it really felt appropriate because the, the... Weirdly, with the passing of Shaw... Right? The mm-hmm. Titan stops becoming the Titan. Yeah. Like, it's been put through the ringer... It's been, you know, challenged. It's been saved. Um, but it does feel, by the end, kind of transformed into something else. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what you... And, and it makes Seven's ascendancy to the captain's position that much more powerful. Right. That she's now handed the legacy of this name. And Jax 
relationship to the Titan, which is it's, it's his father's legacy. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it was the right decision, um, to, to sort of reintroduce the Enterprise as the ship on which you would tell stories going forward if you went forward. It just felt right. Yeah. Um, but it also just felt right for the characters. Last but not least. Okay. Q. So, there's a moment that happens that everybody goes through where it's like, oh my God, this is so great. And then they just leap out of their chairs and freak out. Just when you thought you've already completed. Right. And it's like, you know, Q visits Jack and there's this whole, you know, there's this whole sense that more adventure is coming. Yeah. Um, and I know you guys don't have at this, the time of this interview anyways, there's right. no promise to do more Trek in the future. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how fans react knowing that there's nothing quite set up yet. Right. When they get to that point, they're like, well, wait, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right. right. You know, we, what? what, we need to see what happens next. Yeah. And, uh, we hope that the studio recognizes that at that moment too, but. Well, and some, we, we need the fans. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have the power to call up Paramount and say, give us a show, right? right? And we don't, we can't uh, send an email to Alex and say, Alex, you know, we want control of the 25th century. That's not how it works. Um, and and so all we could do uh, to sort of seed as best we could the stories we would want to tell moving forward is to give the audience all the same excitement and hope and enthusiasm that we have. Uh, and then hope that that translates to them going on Twitter, to subscribing, watching, rewatching, like to just in every way that they can produce numbers for Paramount and for the powers that be behind Trek to say, we want this. Mm. We want to see the Enterprise Dream. We want to know what that bit with Q was like. Um, because, you know, these aren't empty promises we're making. Like if we're allowed to do it, we're going to, we're going to tell you that story. We're going to tell you what happens to the G. We'll tell you what happens to Q. Um, you know, there are already ideas, but in order to do that, we need the audience to be as excited as we were. And so those two sort of ending elements specifically, um, give the show a trajectory forward and kind of show you exactly what the path is going to be. Um, who would have thought to give a thief, a pirate and a spy their own show? What could possibly go wrong? Like, that's the show, man. Like, you know, who doesn't want to watch that? Um, and then add Q to the mix. So you know, we're hoping that when the credits have finished rolling or when the final scene is done playing, that people are just going to put down the box of tissues and, and go to the computer and tweet and email and sign up, rewatch and um, say everything that they need to say to hopefully get us where we need to be. But um, if they don't, you know, hopefully it, it feels like we have seeded the ground for whether it's headcanon, fanfic, novels, comics, whatever form that ends up taking, you know, hopefully we've kicked off something that can get finished at some point in the future. Are you guys aware of the fact that you just created the the greatest feeling or the greatest sense of uh, ending to a season in Star Trek history? Because we think you did. <laughs> we, we think it's the most satisfying ending to a season we've ever seen. And that's that's taking all good things into, into consideration. I hope so. Um, I, I, I don't know if we're... Look, there's the part of me that wants to be humble, right? That wants to say, like, we just told the story we told as best we could tell it. And if we stuck the landing, uh, then we're grateful, right? That the audience felt that way. 
The other part of me wants to be like, yeah, we nailed it. Mm. We nailed that shit <laughs> because we came to it with the best of intentions and we came to it with love. And if you take us out of it completely, if you take the scripts out of it uh, and the writers just step back, we know we still nailed it because the performances are amazing. The score is amazing. The editing is amazing. The production design is amazing. If you completely stripped it of any of our contributions, there is so much talent and so much brilliance on that screen on their own merits that if they if it was a silent movie with no story, we would have nailed it um, because we were so blessed to work with the very best team. And so, uh, you know, I think we are very proud and I think we are um, very uh, grateful for the opportunity. We're very um, hopeful. Uh, that we get to continue to do it. I think we are, um, we, we have a sense that we, we stuck the landing in a way that will be meaningful to people. Um, but that needs to be processed through their lens, you know? And so I, I, we have pride. I don't think we have ego. Um, we're not overconfident about it, but we, we just got blessed to work with the greatest group of people, um, who, who, took the stuff that we wrote and then made it great and so, and and what more can you ask right like that's the that's the greatest gift in the world so